Our scripture lesson is taken from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 43, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 13, page 833 in the Pew Bible, page 833, Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore I will give men for you, and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witness that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? As far the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. I'd also like to read to you from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 8, page 15, in the back of the Blue Psalter Hymnal. Lord's Day 8, page 15. Concerning the articles of the Apostles' Creed, which are a summary of the things that we are called to believe. How are these articles divided? Into three parts. God the Father and our creation. God the Son and our deliverance. God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is but one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true, eternal God. Beloved of the Lord, one of the distinguishing characteristics of the Christian religion A characteristic that sets it apart from all other religions is the biblical teaching that there is one God 
who exists in three persons, each person fully God, yet not three gods, but one God. Any religion that wants to be considered a Christian religion must, at the very least, adhere to this understanding of the Trinity as expressed in the ancient creeds of our church, summarizing what the Scripture teaches. To reject the doctrine of the Trinity is a sign of great apostasy. It is a a heresy that has plagued the church for many centuries, from the early Marcionites and the Arians to modern-day Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons uh, who claim to be Christian, but because they deny the full deity of each person of the Trinity, uh, are not numbered uh, as uh, true Christian churches. It's also one of the hardest doctrines to understand because it seemingly defies human logic. It teaches at its most basic level, three equals one and one equals three. But that that doesn't make sense to us. It it defies human logic. How, How can that be? Well, we need to remember that human logic is a gift from God that is given to us to help us understand the world that he has created. But when we turn it around and use it as a tool to try to understand God, then it fails us. It it wasn't meant for that purpose. Our God is an incomprehensible God in many respects. Uh, Beyond our ability to comprehend, he is infinite in all his attributes, and his glory is beyond our ability to ever fully take in. And therefore, we should not be surprised that he transcends reality, the reality of the creation, and uh, transcends uh, human logic. Dorothy Sayer, the British novelist and playwright and Christian humanist, has uh, written in a book or a pamphlet called Creeds or Chaos that she published in 1949. She said concerning the Trinity uh, that... uh, For the average churchgoer, now this is not her view, but what she is depicting as the average churchgoer, she says the average churchgoer views the Trinity as, quote, the Father is incomprehensible, the Son is incomprehensible, the whole thing is incomprehensible, something put in by the theologians to make it more difficult, nothing to do with daily life or ethics, end of quote. Something that the theologians put in that has nothing to do with daily life, nothing to do with ethics, that is, with what's right or wrong, just something invented by the theologians to make it all difficult. Well, I hope tonight that that is not true of you, but I, I, I'm somewhat uh, sympathetic to her description of the average churchgoer, I, I think that there are many people who go to church that don't realize the great significance of the teaching of the Trinity for our daily lives and for doing what is right and avoiding what is wrong. Uh, it is a doctrine that does have great significance for our daily lives. And, and that's indicated... Uh, at first, in the, in the first question and answer of our lesson from the Heidelberg Catechism, which summarizes the Apostles' Creed 
as being a Trinitarian creed. Indeed, it is a Trinitarian creed. We believe in God the Father. We believe in God the Son. We believe in God the Holy Spirit. But you notice it doesn't just say that. It says more than that. It says we believe in God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. The creeds don't define God as an abstraction, as He is in Himself, but it describes God in His relationship to us. God is the Father, and the Father created us. The Father defines who we are. You know, there are some people who believe that religion ought to be kept out of public life and out of their lives in particular. They don't want to hear about God. They don't want to hear about religion. Just leave religion out of my life. What they don't realize is that God is not attempting to intrude into their lives. (laughs) Their lives are in God's hands. God isn't intruding into their world. They are living in His world. And if they don't understand the world for what God says it is, they don't understand their own environment. They don't understand who they are or what they are. You know, sometimes there is opportunity or need to seek out a a counselor because of marital problems or because of struggles with various uh, 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 diseases or illnesses or uh, problems. And uh, sometimes people will will look for a psychiatrist or a psychologist who has uh, a great uh, degree from a prestigious university and is certified and so forth, but is not a Christian. And I shudder when I I see that happening, because how can you go to someone to counsel you if they don't understand who you are? Because they don't understand what God made you to be and what God wants you to be. Don't understand that you are image of God. Don't understand that you are broken image of God. Don't understand that there is no help or healing for you apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit in your life. There's also the matter of the education of our children, you know. Uh, Our children need to understand that this world in which they live, this world in which they live is, is God's world. And we don't understand this world unless we understand it from God's perspective. Our children need a a Bible-based, God-centered, Christ-centered education if they're to be shown the real world. And be prepared to live in the real world. God the Father and our creation. We, we live in His world. God the Son and our deliverance. Indeed, we are broken people. You don't have to go far to see the brokenness of human life. It's on the pages of every newspaper and news magazine. It's on the radio and the television. We experience it in the... And the, the heartaches that we experience in the home, uh, in, the, in the workplace, in the community, even in the church, there are problems. There, there is evidence of the brokenness of human beings. What are we going to do about that brokenness? Well, you and I, we don't have the power to, to mend the brokenness. Not until we confess that we we are helpless sinners can we find any help, and that help is to be found in Jesus Christ. He is the one 
who saves us. He is the one who repairs us. He is the great physician who, who comes into our lives and, and gives us new life from the dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, but thanks be to God, He makes us alive with Jesus Christ, raises us up with Him, and seats us with Him in heavenly realms so that together with Christ, we are new creatures who are able to, to live a new life even though outwardly we are still wasting away, inwardly are, we are being renewed, and one day Christ will also resurrect our bodies from the grave. We need to remember that again in light of the death of one of our members. That, that's not the end. It's merely a transition, and we wait in hope for that day when our bodies also shall be rescued from the grave and made whole and well again. God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, and, and, and God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Every day you and I struggle against temptation. We struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, all three enemies trying to pull us down and, and, and defile us and degrade us and cause us to bring shame and disgrace on ourselves and on our families and on our church. On the name of Christ, Satan delights to see us stumble and fall and, and, and do bad things. But the Holy Spirit is there to sanctify us, to unite us to Christ, and to make His Word powerful in our lives, to uh, arm us with the, the whole armor of God so that we are equipped to fight against temptation and to pray and to watch so that we are delivered and more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, so that we are uh, transformed by, uh, the, uh, from one degree of glory to another, beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as we see Him in Scripture through the work of the Spirit. You see, this, the triune God, we need Him. We need Him in, in, in education. We, we, we need Him in in deliverance from evil. We need Him for strength to live. That's what the Trinity is all about. It, it, it is very practical for everyday life. Now, we have to ask the question, where, where does this doctrine come from? Is it indeed the invention of the theologians? The Jehovah Witnesses love to tell us that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, and if that is proof that uh, therefore it is not a biblical doctrine invented by the theologians. Well, can you defend from Scripture the doctrine of the Trinity if you had to give a reason why you believe it? Are you able to do so? How do we know that there is a Trinity? Well, we know there is a Trinity because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. That's what the Confession says, because that's how God has revealed Himself in His Word. Think about those words for a minute. God has revealed Himself. You know, God is high and lifted up. God dwells in unapproachable light. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He is infinite, and therefore He is unmeasurable, and He is incomprehensible in so much of His being. How can such a God reveal Himself to us? 
Well, there's some place in, in Calvin's commentaries, in, in the Old Testament commentaries. I, I wish I could find it again, but you'll have to uh, do with my, my remembrance of it. But uh, somewhere in, in his commentaries, he, he says that God is like a parent speaking to a little child. He, he prattles to us in words that we can understand. You know, when, when you speak to a little child, one and a half, two years old, you don't use your adult vocabulary. You probably don't even use your adult syntax and grammar. You adapt your speech to the way a little child speaks so that that little child can understand you. Well, the most erudite speaker uh, in earth, uh, the most uh, accomplished rhetorician with the greatest vocabulary, speaks baby talk compared to what our God speaks. But our God condescends to speak to us in a, in a way that we can understand. We don't have exhaustive knowledge, but we have true knowledge of God because God can condescend. He can stoop down to our level and speak to us in ways that we understand. That's what the scriptures are all about. Uh, he, he is there and he has spoken to us. And what has he revealed about himself? Well, he has revealed that he is one God. We read that, for example, in what is known as the Shema. Uh, that's a Hebrew word, the first word of Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, which means listen up, hearken, hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a key verse in uh, Jewish theology and in Christian theology as well. Uh, our God is one God, and it goes on to say, parents, this is what you need to teach to your children. And your children need to know this. Uh, when you're getting up, when you're going sit, sitting down, when you're walking in the way, uh, all of life needs to be impermeated with the teaching of the truth that we have one God. Isaiah 44, the Lord says, I am the first and the last Apart from me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Thus we have in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods beside me. No other gods because there are no other gods. Oh, there are idols to be sure, idols that we invent, idols of wood and stone, idols of uh, uh, ideals and, and uh, philosophies that uh, we create, that we make more important, uh, especially the, uh, the idol of self that we elevate above uh, God. Uh, there are these idols that we call gods and treat as gods, but they are false gods. They are not true gods. There is only one true God. I have proclaimed, we read in Isaiah 43, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign god among you. Therefore, uh, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Unless uh, we think that there is a God and then also a Savior, we read from Isaiah 43, verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord. And that word Lord is uh, translation of Yahweh or Jehovah. I, even I, am Jehovah, and beside me there is no Savior. 
Our Jehovah Witnesses would say there's Jehovah on the one hand, and then there is a lesser God called the Savior. But here Jehovah says, I'm the Savior. Uh, Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah, he is the Savior. James in his epistle says, you believe in one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And so the Bible is quite clear. There is but one God. But then the Bible also makes clear that there are three distinct persons who are each divine. One uh, text that uh, is often referred to in this regard is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist at the Jordan River. There, Jesus, the Son, stands on the banks of the Jordan River to receive baptism from John. But then there is also a voice from heaven. A voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit appears in the form of a dove and descends upon Jesus. You have the father present. You have the son present. And you have the spirit present simultaneously. There's an ancient heresy called modalism, which says that God is God sometimes relates to us as a father, and sometimes he relates to us as a son, and sometimes he relates to us as a spirit. But these are simply different ways that the one God relates to us, just as some of you men are uh, at times, you're a child to your parents, and then you're a husband to your wife, you're a father to your children. You, you wear different hats, so to speak, but you're just one person who has different activities and different relationships. Well, that's called modalism, and that's a heresy, because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons who can be present simultaneously and interact with each other. Uh, the Father speaks to the Son. The, the Son hears the Father and is encouraged by what the Father has to say. And the, the Spirit comes and equips and anoints the Son uh, for the work that he is about to undertake. Uh, these three persons of the Trinity are present simultaneously and interacting with one another. There's not one God showing himself three different ways, but uh, three persons each uh, interacting with each other. Uh, the Trinity is evident in, uh, in Genesis 1, where God says, let us make man in our image. And uh, he uh, created uh, Adam and Eve to, uh, as a, a pair to relate to each other in uh, communion and fellowship with each other. Uh, that's part of being the image of God. It's not only us creating. It's not Jesus, uh, not God and the angels, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the us. And when he creates in his image, he creates people who will be in relationship to each other. In the farewell discourse, in the upper room, recorded in John 15 and 16, Jesus talks about his Father, and he talks about the Spirit, and he says, I'm going to return to the Father. You know, right now, I'm not with the Father. The Father's up there in heaven. I'm here on earth, but I'm going to return to the Father. But when I return to the Father, then we're going to send the Spirit. And if I don't go to the Father, the Spirit can't come. Well, again, it's evident that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are 
uh, separate persons. But there is great unity between the Father and the Son because Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, <laughs> then the Father and I will be present in you. We will make our home with you, our abode with you through the Spirit. Because the Spirit is divine, because the Spirit is God, where the Spirit is, there the Father and Son are present also. And so we recognize that though there is but one God, and the Bible is clear in many places, saying there is but one God, and and nevertheless the Bible shows us these three divine persons. We'll go into it uh, further, the three divine persons. In the weeks ahead, Lord willing, as we look at the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit following the sequence of the Catechism. But uh, for the time being, uh, it, it should be evident that indeed there is scriptural evidence. This is not something made up by the theologians. We shouldn't be so arrogant as, just, as to reject it because we, we don't know how to make sense of three being one. We know that it's true, even though we don't know how it can be true. We know that the Bible reveals it, even though we don't understand uh, how God exists in himself in this uh, marvelous way. Now, we have to ask the question, why is this so important? Well, we've already begun to see that it, it relates to everyday life with regard to God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our deliverance, God the Spirit in our sanctification. It has a great bearing on, on our very existence and in our life in this world. But even beyond that, I'd like to say to you tonight that the Trinity is the goal of our salvation. Now, bear with me. I realize that sounds perhaps a little strange, but it's designed to get your interest, to perk your interest a little bit. And I didn't invent that saying. Others have uh, said it before me, my betters. Uh, The Trinity is the goal of our salvation. What What do I mean by that? Well, the goal of our salvation is to be united with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's to become one with them, not to become divine, but to become a member of their family and to enjoy intimate, close communion and fellowship. To put it differently, why is God a God of love? Why is God a God of love? Well, he's a God of love because he is a triune God. He's a God of love because... He has always known personal, interpersonal love. Love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. An infinite love. An eternal love. A perfect love. Because they love each other in a personal way, it can be said of God, God is love. Imagine if that weren't true. Imagine if, if God were a single person, as some religions uh, imagine him. That would mean that before there were human beings, before this, this one God who is a single person, before he created human beings, before he created the world, he was all alone. There was no one for him to love. There was no one to love him. He wouldn't have known love 
love would not have been a characteristic of him because love wouldn't have not, there, would, there was no opportunity for love. And even if such a God were to create creatures like himself, but lesser than himself, image bearers of himself, uh, but uh, finite and limited because only he is God, even if he were to create creatures upon whom he could shower his love, and who in turn could love him, because those creatures are not fully God, they can't reciprocate the kind of love they receive. They can only give a a finite love back to God. They might be able to receive love uh, from God, but they can't give back to God an equal measure of love because they are not infinite beings. So again, God would be frustrated, so to speak, in that he, he couldn't have an equal with whom to share himself in a loving relationship. You see, our God is not a single person. He's three persons. One God, three persons who have known infinite love. And he created us so that we might experience his love. You know, the Apostle John writes... In his uh, epistle, uh, first chapter of First uh, John, chapter one, verse three, he says, uh, "That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you might have fellowship with us." We're writing the gospel to you. We're writing our letters to you, so that we can have fellowship together. You know, the fellowship of the body of Christ. And then he goes on to say, "And our fellowship is with the Father." And with his son, Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't mention the spirit there, but it's understood that fellowship with the father and the son is through the spirit that is poured out on the church. And so we have fellowship and and John is writing to to people so that they might come into a relationship of fellowship, fellowship with the father and the son and the Holy Spirit, fellowship with other Christians. We're We're being brought together in a community of love. You know, in this passage from Isaiah 43 that uh, declares, I am God, you know, what does this God do? He says, I, I will bring you from afar. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughter from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name. He's a God who gathers his people together, gathers them to himself, gathers us to each other gathers us with each other in his presence so that we might know his love. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may know who may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. He's praying for the unity of the body of Christ, that we might be united, and that we might be united with them, with the Father and the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. The goal of salvation is to come together, to come together in the bond of fellowship and love. If you don't want that, then you don't understand God. You know, John writes a little later in that same epistle. He says, he who does not love does not know God because God is love. And again, in that same chapter, 
John, 1 John 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The Christian faith is all about love. Loving God and showing that we love God by loving each other, by coming together in love. Anyone who says, I love God, but I don't need the church. I don't want the church. I don't want to go to church. I want to have fellowship with Christians. They're all a bunch of jerks. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. I love God, but I don't want the church. You don't know God. God is a God of love. A God who comes and brings people together in love. Who makes them one in fellowship. A fellowship of love. If a man is abusive of his wife and of his children, if he harangues and, and uh, oppresses them with uh, language or violence, he doesn't love his wife <laughs> and he doesn't know God because God is love. If a child hates his parents, rebels against his parents and cuts himself off from his parents and has nothing to do with them, he doesn't know God because God is a love, God of love who brings people together in fellowship. If you have political foes who you demean and demonize and, and bring all kinds of accusations against and say all kinds of terrible things about them because they represent things that you disagree with, you don't know the God of love. God says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. We should be praying for our enemies, not vilifying them and demonizing them, but seeking to bring them to a knowledge of God and the love of God who reconciles sinners to himself and to one another. The Trinity is very practical. It's very much about what's right and wrong because the Trinity is about love. And love has to do with all our relationships in this world. Husbands and wives, parents and children, co-workers, church members, politicians and political environments, neighbors and neighborhoods. Everything is about community. It's about fellowship. And it's all built on the foundation that God is love and calls us to reflect that love. If we don't love each other, we misrepresent God. That's why Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer that they might be one so the world knows that you sent me. If we can't come together and love each other, then the message is not a message of reconciliation. You know, that's what Paul calls it, calls it in one of his Corinthian letters. He says the gospel is the message of reconciliation. The proof of it is in that sinners are reconciled to each other. And if sinners are reconciled to each other, then the world can't see any evidence that the gospel is true. But if they can see us getting along with each other and loving others and even loving our enemies, then that's proof that the gospel of reconciliation, the message of reconciliation is true. So it's, it's vital for the mission of the church that husbands love their wives, wives love their husbands, children love their parents, parents love their children, church members love each other, that we love our neighbors, that we love our enemies. 
but that the gospel may go forth in the power of the Spirit and turn people to Christ. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of love, a God who has always known love, love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, an infinite love, a uh, an eternal love and a perfect love. And we thank you that you have poured that love on us and called us into fellowship with you so that we might begin to experience that love now and can experience, look forward to experience it in ever fuller ways in the life to come. We pray, O oh Father, that we would show that we know you are a God of love and that we love you by our love for one another. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.